And so friends, today we are beginning a four-week series of Sundays exploring a verse from the message of the Old Testament prophet Micah and thinking about how it might speak to us in these days. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 is almost certainly the most well-known verse from the book of Micah. It's quite possibly the only one that many of us will be familiar with. And it says, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. These are words that have challenged and inspired the church throughout the ages. They led to the establishment in 1999 of the Micah Network, a global community of ministries and individuals, all with a passion for mission. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to take each part of that verse in turn. This morning, we'll think a bit about who Micah was and what his message was all about. And we'll think about the question that Micah poses, and what does the Lord require of you? But before we do that, let's pray. And so gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together this morning be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So Micah, what do we know? Micah, whose name means who is like God, was from the small town of Moresheth Gath, which was located about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. However, Micah leaves his hometown and fulfills his prophetic ministry in the city. We don't know much else about Micah, really, although where he comes from and the way in which he speaks about the city suggests to us that he was more of a country guy, perhaps a peasant farmer or someone with a small holding. His protests against the oppression of the underprivileged reflect his own identification with them. And like Moses, um, Amos even, Micah was likely not a professional prophet in the way that some others were. In fact, he criticises those who make their living uh, giving prophecies twice in chapter 3 of his book. You get a sense as you read it of Micah being on the outside, of not being well connected with all the people who have influence and authority, and which might well be because they are part of the problem. This book's introduction locates Micah in the time of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, which makes Micah a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And we're talking in this uh, book about 735 to 700 BC. And Isaiah and Micah are an interesting pair, really. One is almost an aristocrat, an advisor to kings and statesmen. The other, a peasant farmer or landowner who visits the capital city to confirm the reports that he'd heard. But whilst the two differ in their background and in their social status, they share a common courage and a common conviction. Both prophets are convinced that the nation of Judah was heading for disaster, not least because of the oppression suffered by the poorest in their society and the regular worshipping of other gods. They were also certain, however, that God had a brighter future in store for the people. And this double note of judgment and hope gives the book its structure. 
The book both begins and ends with a series of negative messages capped with something shorter and more hopeful. So that's at the beginning and the end, and then there's this more complex section in the middle. Now, Micah presents his uh, message in terms of some sort of controversy between God and the people. And at times it almost reads like the people are standing in the dock as Micah lays out the charge against them. The prophecy of Micah emphasises some familiar themes to many Old Testament prophets. The holiness and sovereignty of God, the seriousness of sin, judgment, restoration, God's mercy. One of the things that marks Micah out, though, is how he draws a line between true faith and ethical behaviour or ethical living. That line, he says, has been cut or misdirected by the people. And he paints a picture of disaster reaching the very gates of Jerusalem. Now, all sorts of things have led to this disaster. We're told the people were praying and worshipping to other gods. We're told that they were relying on their own defences and building up their military muscle in order to try and protect themselves and ensure a future. We're told there's a complete collapse in the leadership of the nation, both in terms of their ethics and in their capacity to make some decisions. The rights of ordinary people were being suppressed in the courts and people are being abused and taken advantage of. Micah singles out the so-called prophets who have succumbed to materialism and lost all sense of their true calling. People with resources and power, we're told, are plotting how they can extend their power and resources regardless of the consequences that this has for others. There's a real anger in Micah's message at the buying up of land by a new moneyed class because of the detrimental impact that has on the poor. And the people, particularly their leaders, assumed that God's presence in the temple meant that their city and their way of life was invincible. Micah tells them that Jerusalem will fall, and quite literally it does in 586 BC. If we can be suitably religious, the theory went, that will paper over the cracks of our hearts and our minds. The people worked on the premise that if they put on a good religious show, what goes on the rest of the time doesn't really matter. That's how they got their theory wrong, of course. And Micah's sent to tell them that they've made a mistake. They've missed the point. It's not, all, not displays of worship, but a righteous way of life that show a healthy relationship to God. All these increasingly elaborate things aren't what God is after. It's as if God is saying to the people through the prophet Micah, you make it all so complicated, but what I'm interested in is so very simple. If they can focus on the right things, they can be sure that out of Jerusalem's ashes will arise a new Jerusalem, a centre of worship for all the nations of the world. And, you know, hearing all of Micah's critique, hearing God's challenge to the people, I don't think it's too tricky to draw another line from Micah's time to ours. We don't have to look too far 
to see how land and resources and wealth are increasingly held in the hands of a very small number of people? How many homes does one person need? At what point do we really not need any more money? And all the time, those at the bottom of the economic and social ladders are squeezed and ignored. We don't have to look too far to see how failures of leadership store up problems for the future. How long has government after government promised us a plan for social care, for example? And nor has the church been immune from perpetuating injustice. This isn't the world's problem. We are part of it too. In our history, the church has been complicit in the slave trade, in environmental destruction, in the trauma of conversion therapy. And always we have to work at not getting distracted by impressive religious shows, by more sophisticated displays of faith, lest it remove our focus from the justice of God's kingdom and the need for us to speak out about and actively take steps to bring change. Now we're not in the same space or time as the nation of Judah in the 8th century BC. And most significantly, between now and then, we've had the incarnation, where Jesus comes and shows us how to live and gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us put it all into practice. He puts an end to the sacrificial system and calls us to focus on what really matters. But what we are, though, is in a space and in a time where many of us are thinking about life, we're making some changes, we're not automatically going back to how things were before, we're thinking it through. And so this is as good a time as any to think about what's really important and what God might require of us. Because that's the thing, friends, God does require something from us. We'll explore what it means over the coming weeks to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. But before we can do that, we're just going to dwell for a few moments on this idea that God actually might require something of you and me in this moment. You know, Jesus was pretty clear that following him was going to be demanding In our reading from Mark chapter 8, which comes just after Jesus alludes to his death for the first time, Jesus is fairly blunt in laying out the cost of being his disciple. Jesus isn't embarking on something that'll be a bit risky. It would, in fact, be certain death. This was what he had to do. Now, the disciples gathered around him may have got to the stage of not seeing Jesus as a military leader. That much had sunk in by now. But this still was a significant challenge to them. See, in the eyes of everyone around them, Jesus seemed to be saying that he was going to lose. And he's inviting them to come and lose alongside him. To be his disciples must be about preparing to follow in his footsteps. And this is a challenge to all of us. As the church in each generation is called to live from God's point of view in a world where that seems like madness. And when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, as we do when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that's a prayer that's all about challenging and overturning all normal human assumptions about power and glory and what's really important 
in this life. And friends, that's what being a disciple is all about. It's learning from and following the way of the teacher. For us, that's Jesus Christ. And so we seek to learn from him and live as followers of the way. You know, I'm told the word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for the disciples of Jesus Christ. The call that comes through its pages is to devote ourselves to becoming more like Christ, to dwell in his faith and practice, and to systematically and progressively rearrange our lives to that end. And if we really do intend to be like Christ... I want to suggest that that will be fairly obvious to every thoughtful person around us as well as to ourselves. If we're deciding each day to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to walk the second mile with those who hurt us, we'll find that whilst it doesn't always come naturally, and there are times when to choose the way is to go against our instinct, we'll almost certainly find too that discipleship is far from dreadful. Living the life that Jesus calls us to live is the way to experience life in all its fullness, an abundance of life. Discipleship leads to a life shot through with love and hope and peace, even in the midst of the most challenging circumstances. And so friends, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you in this moment. You ready to explore Micah's challenge? Because that's what we're going to be doing over these weeks together. This morning though as we begin, I just want you to get ready with that question. What might God be requiring of you in this moment? And I want you to know that God hasn't finished with you yet and that the work of being Christ's disciples and finding more abundant life as we follow him is not done. So may the Holy Spirit stir in each of us a desire to grow and to follow and to learn and to love. Amen.